Welcome everyone to Unpacking Latin America, the podcast of the Institute of Latin American Studies at Columbia University, which brings to our audience the work of faculty at Columbia University and how it helps our understanding of the region. For the next half hour, we will be talking with Sylvia Martin, who's an Associate Professor of Epidemiology in the Melman School of Public Health at Columbia University. And the topic of our episode is COVID-19 and its impact in Latin America. She's going to explain to us the difference across countries in terms of the timing of their policies and how it affects the spread of the illness, as well as the consequences of quarantine. And she's going to talk about what are the lessons of having leadership that can unify its message or not vis-a-vis -vis the effect of these policies for the population and how they affect not just Latin Americans in the region, but also the Latino population in New York City. Dr. Sylvia Martins is the director of the Substance Abuse Epidemiology Unit of the Department of Epidemiology in Columbia University Melman School of Public Health. And she also leads the policy and health initiatives on opioids and other substances interdisciplinary group. She was born in Brazil and trained there where she received her MD and PhD. And she both has an academic and a personal connection to the region. Hello, Sylvia. And thank you for agreeing to talk to me in this new episode of Unpacking Latin America, where we are going to talk about coronavirus crisis and how it is affecting Latin America. Before we start, can you briefly explain to our audience what was your trajectory and how do you decide to leave your native Brazil, come to the United States and join the faculty at Columbia University? Yes, sure. Hello, Vicky. Thank you for inviting me to talk in Unpacking Latin America. So I moved to the U.S. in 2003, primarily due to my husband's job as a Brazilian diplomat when he was transferred to work in Washington, D.C. Before coming to the U.S., I had attended six years of medical school in Brazil. I did a residency in psychiatry at the University of Sao Paulo and also a Ph.D. in addiction psychiatry in the same institution. Then in September 2003, I had just finished my PhD at the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Sao Paulo. And right after that, I started a postdoctoral fellowship in substance abuse epidemiology at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Then I stayed as faculty at Hopkins from 2005 until mid-2012. And in 2012, I moved my academic affiliation from Johns Hopkins to Columbia Mailman School of Public Health. That's how I'm here. That's a, an unexpected turn of events to arrive to Colombia, but one that's very exciting for us. So let me start by telling our audience that COVID-19 arrived to Latin America on February 26th of this year, when the first case was detected in your natal Brazil. And since then, it had reached, I believe, all countries in the region, but this is spreading at different speeds. And the number of cases varies a lot from country to country. There are a lot of cases in Brazil, which is a very populous country, the most populous, but also a lot of cases in Chile and Ecuador where much smaller populations. And of course, smaller countries have fewer cases like Bolivia and Nicaragua, but also in relative terms, Argentina has fewer cases than Chile, despite being the double of the size. So one of the things that's interesting for me and I hope for our audience is what explains the different spread of the epidemic with a different contagion pace, is this related to the policies, the health policies of the region? Is this related to availability of tests? Is this related to the traveling patterns of the population or the preparedness of the health system? What do you think is explaining this different path of movement of the illness? 
So first of all, I think it's important to know, to have a global view of what happened when COVID first arrived in Brazil. So as you pointed out, the first case was confirmed in Brazil on February 26, and that was a businessman that had just traveled to Italy and come back to Sao Paulo. Then right after that, the first fatality was registered in Argentina on March 7th, and also it was a person that had traveled in February to Europe. Uh, after that, where there were cases that started being reported in other countries, so including on March 18, cases reported in El Salvador and Nicaragua, and on the on March 20th in Haiti, which until March 20th was the only country in Latin America without reported cases. As of today, the most affected countries in Latin America are Brazil, Chile, and Ecuador. Brazil has 4,600 4, cases and 163 deaths. Chile has 2,449 cases and eight deaths, and Ecuador has almost 2,000 cases and 62 deaths. So the distinct patterns of spread across a region are probably related to different traveling patterns and level of commercial and travel interactions with other countries. So as I said before, like in Brazil, the first few cases were of people that came infected from Europe, particularly people that were coming back from Italy, Spain and France, and also people from the USA. Several might have seen in the news that Brazilian government officials came to Florida and almost a little bit more than 20 of them ended up being infected with COVID in early March. Also, the spread of the disease in the region is related to urban density, with cases spreading faster initially in densely populated areas. So that is the case of Sao Paulo and Rio de Janeiro in Brazil, and also Santiago in Chile. There is also the possibility that these distinct patterns might vary by pollution levels in the different cities in, in the area. In addition, the spread of the disease is related to policies implemented after the discovery of the first few cases. So some countries implemented policies very early after the first few cases are identified, and then some other countries implemented policies only later. And this also explains differences in community spread of the disease across the population. So the speed with which local governments reacted also plays a role in the spread of the disease. For example, Argentina had a faster and way more incisive response than several other countries as compared to Brazil and Chile. One, one other point that I think is important to note is that different from Europe, Latin America is comprised mainly by a young population and only 9% of the population in the region is older than 65 years of age. So two things here. One is the younger population might get infected even if they don't present uh, yes. symptoms. So the fact that there is a younger population should reduce the fatality rate, but not necessarily the spread of the illness, if I'm Yes, probably right. not. Probably not necessarily the spread of the illness. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, most, of the, most of the cases to date are on a younger population. So people 50 and, old, uh, and younger. Yeah. Do you think you emphasize in your response to my prior action the issue of timing, right? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So what do you think could have been done differently, given that the health systems in the region are pretty weak? And so if this catches up, it's going to be an even more dramatic situation than in Europe. What could have been done differently to reduce the rate of contagious that we have seen? So Latin American countries could have predicted that eventually COVID-19 would arrive there and they could have taken stronger measures in ports of arrival. So for example, in airports and ports. 
So to avoid community spread and to prevent contagion to be autochthonous, the countries that identify the first few cases, so for example, Brazil, people arriving from Europe and people arriving from the US could have enforced strict isolation of those cases, as well as isolation of all of their contacts. So their family members, people that were in the same plane as them, and could have attempted to test rapidly all close contacts of those first initial cases. Even though there is news that this was tried in some cases, it was not overall strictly enforced in all countries and rapidly community spread began. So in addition, I think that most of the countries should be tracking all people arriving in the countries in late February and early March and tracking them in airports and ports or tracking when they're arriving in the countries and requiring them to self-quarantine. So that came later in March that some countries were requiring people arriving from Europe or from the US or from Asia to self-quarantine, but that wasn't a policy initially in most countries. So, I mean, it's interesting that in dealing with this, which is a health problem of tremendous proportion around the world, we have seen a lot of variation that seems to be explained by policy and politics. And two of the countries that you mentioned, Brazil and Chile, have not declared compulsory quarantines, although both have closed their borders by now. And Chile also have quarantined part of its major city, its capital city of Santiago, and established a curfew. And other countries in South America had very different policies. So Argentina, Peru, Bolivia, Ecuador, and Paraguay established compulsory quarantines. And in the cases of Peru and Argentina in particular, there seems to be a pretty strict enforcement with security forces finding and people on the streets if they find them. I mean, for considerably weak states that do not achieve a lot of enforcement, it's pretty dramatic, the measures that we are seeing uh, now. So I wanted to get your sense uh, of the impact of quarantines in health terms, because they do have also a very dramatic cost, both socially and economically. So they have been very contentious measures, even in the countries that adopt them the most stringently. So it is known that enforcing quarantines can lead to flattening the curve. So that means like in epidemiology, it means the idea of slowing a virus spread so that fewer people need to seek treatment at any given time. It explains why so many countries are implementing social distance guidelines now. And doing so avoids the overburdening of healthcare systems wherever it has been implemented in a timely fashion. So the faster the infection curve rises, the quicker the local healthcare system gets overloaded beyond its capacity to treat people. As we're seeing in Italy, more and more new patients may be forced to go without intensive care unit beds, and more and more hospitals may run out of the basic supplies they need to respond to the outbreak. On the other hand, we have a flatter curve. We assume that the same number of people ultimately will get infected, but over a longer period of time. And then as lower as lower infection rate will mean a less stressed healthcare system, fewer hospital visits on any given day, and fewer sick people being turned away. It is not only just important to flatten the curve of COVID-19 in Latin America, but also guarantee that in doing so, the poorest and the most vulnerable in the population do not aggravate their already impaired conditions. As you know, many health systems in Latin America are a mixture both between private and public structures. And the healthcare systems in most countries in, in Latin America are also very class biased. But most importantly, I believe I should stress that all healthcare systems in Latin America have large public universal healthcare infrastructures, which is different from what we have here in the US. 
So even if these healthcare systems are underfunded, and even though there are lots of disparities within these healthcare systems across countries, and even within countries, even the most vulnerable in Latin American societies will have access to at least some form of free healthcare, which is virtually non-existent here in the U.S. And specifically regarding Latin America, most of the governments seem now to understand the seriousness of the situation. So on March 11th, El Salvador was the first country to close its airports to international flights. Eight days later, Peru began restricting citizen mobility. Right after that, Argentina ordered mandatory isolation of its population. The Dominican Republic ordered a curfew. Bolivia also decreed mandatory isolation and suspended its presidential elections. Colombia closed its airports to all international flights and announced a 19-day mandatory isolation. Paraguay closed its airports, Uruguay closed schools, banned public shows, closed its borders, and Chile recently declared that its capital, Santiago, was going to enter in quarantine for at least seven days. However, contrary to most countries in, in Latin America, the Brazilian federal government refused at first to take drastic measures against COVID-19. So for example, state governors in Sao Paulo and Rio de Janeiro, among others, like the states of Goiás, Paraná, and Santa Catarina, took more drastic measures and encouraged social distancing, as well as school and university closures, measures that were later adopted by several other Brazilian states. Sao Paulo and Rio de Janeiro are now the states in which most of the cases are concentrated in Brazil as of now, roughly representing about half of the cases in the country. Similarly, in Mexico, Mexican President Manuel López Obrador encouraged people to go outside so the economy would not grind in, in the beginning. However, on March 25th, Mexico announced that community transmission of COVID-19 was happening and started the application of more severe actions. So it seems that the countries are taking action, some faster, some slower. This is a very significant difference though because you said the time that it so time is very important in the in your yes. in your narrative of what's explaining and it seems to me it's important in two different ways when you arrive later to the decision to apply a social isolation the spread of the illness gets faster and more prevalent in your community but also once you decide to apply a measures of social isolation to flatten the curve as you very well explain that would also create a longer period. I mean, yeah. less dramatic, it will save life, but it will expose the country to a longer period with the illness. And so these are very hard decisions to make, in a sense, for politicians. So it's, it makes sense that there is disagreement about them. However, in the case of Brazil that you describe, it seems that the disagreement goes beyond the trade-off that time implies. So as you said, the president and the federal government had very different policies from most of the state governments, and in particular mm -hmm. the state of Sao Paulo and other big states, and to the point that the president has generated or tried to generate a movement, a political movement to end the process of social isolation and the quarantine that was stopped by the judiciary very recently. And so in the case of Brazil, we see both very dramatic difference between the federal government and the states a very dramatic difference between the message that the population is hearing from President Bolsonaro, from the governors, even from the vice president. And so what do you think are the consequences of Brazilian policies in terms of both epidemiologically and the effectiveness of the quarantine 
that or, or the measures of social isolation because there's not a, a compulsory quarantine. So in, in my view, the problem with other Brazilian policies in epidemiological terms are that the actions to specifically flatten the curve might be taken too late in most of the regions and the general population ends up not knowing who to believe in and will end up very confused by the different mixed messages they receive on a daily basis, either from the federal government, the state government or the local government. And in, in doing so, it also has the potential to increase panic, anxiety, or complete disbelief in the government once stronger actions need to be implemented. And as of, uh, as of this past weekend, the federal government, some members of the federal government decided to take stronger action and they decided to keep schools and universities closed in most areas of the country until at least the end of April. And the Congress has voted on giving a monetary assistance to family in need. In addition, there is some discussion about potentially isolation of the elderly and the immunocompromised. So, which would be known as vertical isolation, but it hasn't strictly enforced complete isolation of the general population for now, which is being enforced by some of the local governments. In addition, it has been reported that Brazil is trying to buy or has already bought about 22 million COVID-19 tests. And once they receive those, they hope to start more aggressive testing of the population, but I'm still unsure when exactly that will happen. So even though some measures were taken late and there is disagreement between the federal government and the state government, one of the, one of the advantages is that Brazil has a large coordinated universal healthcare system and it should be a little bit better prepared than several other countries in Latin America to deal with COVID-19. One important thing to point out is that Brazil overall has more hospital beds and intensive care units than many European countries, including Spain and Italy, but those are not evenly distributed throughout the country. So a lot of them are more largely concentrated in the richest states of the country. I think that one of the things that really your answer brings to the fore is the difference between the health community and the expert community and and how their relations with politicians or the way in which they're heard by politicians affects the ability of countries to deal with this crisis. Since in the Brazilian case, although the, the community is so strong, the health community, and there's such a very strong uh, supply of experts, they were not heard initially by the government. And it's, you know, that seems to have delayed the answer and produced this kind of patchwork of policies. Is yes, right? exactly. Yeah, that is absolutely correct. Yeah, it's a patchwork of policies. Yeah. So I guess there's a lesson for other countries that you see there? Yes. Uh, so uh, I think the most important lesson is that in a pandemic situation such as COVID-19, the messages to the general population from both the local, state and federal government should be extremely coordinated. And they should be strong messages and clearly aligned. So to avoid generating anxiety, panic, and confusion, and also disbelief. So in situations similar to this one, unity across the, the different governmental bodies is very important. And so policymakers and politicians need to hear experts and need to guide their actions based on evidence provided by these experts. So in Chile, another country that you follow where the president is also right-wing, but not so distrustful of expertise and science, but has also slow 
coming slow to the decision of moving into social isolation, but different from Brazil, Chile is not a federal country. So there's really not so many different levels of government to make different decisions. So how do you evaluate the response of the Chilean government, given that it, it kind of was slower than expected, but at the same time, it could be, didn't suffer from the effect of having this patchwork of different people making different decisions. Is that better or would have been better to have, you know, other actors, say the city of Santiago acting faster than the president did? So first of all, like, even though I'm not a political science expert, I, I would like to note that there are political differences between the Brazilian and Chilean presidents. Yeah. While Jair Bolsonaro, Brazil's alt-right president, has been a longtime career politician who sells himself as an outsider of the political establishment and was elected in a situation similar to Trump's election here in the U.S., Sebastian Piñera is a traditional conservative politician in Chile who has already been Chile's president in the past. So even though some actions in Chile were slightly, uh, a little bit delayed, Chile closed schools on March 16, and schools are closed until May, it closed border with all countries about a week ago, and last Thursday, it enforced a lockdown of Santiago, the capital, for at least a week that will probably last longer. Chile has, as of now, like oh, about more than 2,000 cases, and most of these, those cases are in the capital, which is under a lockdown. If anything to do different, I would have implemented social distancing measures earlier in March, and potentially enforce the national lockdown instead of a lockdown only of the Santiago region to avoid increases in the number of cases in other regions of the country of people that are moving or have moved from Santiago before the lockdown. Uh, I think it's also important to note for the listeners that in Chile, the virus outbreak happened in a country that has profound social division that erupted last October, in October 2019 with a wave of huge anti-government protests over social inequality and that demonstrations were happening sporadically and sometimes violently until the middle of March. But I think the measures were implemented a little bit late, but at least the message seems to be more unified than in Brazil, for example. I totally agree. I think that the consequence of the protests have weakened the authority of President Pinheiro pretty significantly. And he has recovered a bit of his authority in dealing mm -hmm. with the illness. One of the things that the illness did in, in political terms is it stopped the protests that continue into March. So by mid-March, March 11, there were already very big protests going on. And the virus have put off all of these protests. I mean, not just in Chile, but across the region. And, and as yes, of in Bolivia, it postponed the presidential election. In Chile, it postponed the place beside over the constitutional reform. So there are significant political consequences of the virus, not just of the health policies of the virus. And I'm glad you brought this into the conversation. I want to finish by coming back home, I guess, no? by connecting the experience of Latin America to the experience of the United States, in particular to the experience of New York City, which is at the epicenter of the illness in the United States and the pandemic, and has a very large Latino population, most of which is quite vulnerable and connected to the region culturally and personally. This is, of course, now our own city. And New York is much richer than any city in the region, but like Latin American cities, is a city with very densely populated and very unequal. Mm -hmm. uh, so how do we think about the experience of New York in particular and the experience of Latin America? And are there lessons that can be drawn 
from New York or to Latin America or the other way around? Well, yes, uh, I think there are several parallels between the experience here in New York City and in Latin America for Latinos, as is the case in several areas of Latin America, Latinos here in New York City and in some other areas of the US live in highly densely populated areas. And several parts of New York City that have a large Latino population are underserved areas of the city. So for example, the South Bronx, certain areas in Queens, and they are areas that are being hard hit by COVID-19. And we should also remember that Latinos in New York City and in the rest of the U.S. can be underinsured or lack insurance. So we have to think about like the case of Latino illegal immigrants that don't have any access to health care here and thus might not receive optimal health care if they become ill with COVID-19. In addition, I think a parallel that can, can be made, as is a case in Latin America, the U.S. is lagging in testing its population to identify cases of COVID-19 early. One lesson that I think that Latin America could learn from the U.S. is to make sure that the general population receives the correct messages about social distancing, or as some prefer now, instead of saying social distancing, some, some prefer say that we should be using the term physical distancing and social solidarity. And another lesson is to learn from the U.S. is to try to be prepared ahead of time and be prepared for distance learning, teaching for K-12 for future pandemics. So different from New York City, for example, in which in which children in public schools are receiving online teaching and distance learning. Public schools in Brazil, for example, are closed, but children are not receiving any form of online learning. Only children in certain private schools there are receiving online learning. And also to make sure that most vulnerable children continue to receive meals that they were receiving while attending school, as well as providing childcare for first responders and essential personnel, so, such as doctors, nurses, emergency care population, people that work in grocery stores, people that are truly essential and need to be working in the pandemic, which as of now, I don't think there's, at least in Brazil, I don't think there's any kind of support in doing that for children that attend public schools or parents that have children in, in public schools. On the other hand, I think the reverse lessons that Latin America could teach the U.S. is, and that some countries in Latin America could teach the U.S., is to take strong, bold action as soon as the first cases appear. So, for example, as the case of Argentina and some other countries. And another one is to seriously consider whether it wouldn't be better here in the U.S. to have a federalized, unified, universal healthcare system for all the country, similar to what is available in most countries in Latin America. I'm pretty sure that's going to be part of the conversation going on after this experience. Just to conclude, is there any advice you want to leave to our listeners in terms of how to get information about COVID and what to do to help in this situation? Well, I think in particular, if people want to get more information about COVID-19, specifically in Latin America, is to check COVID-19 worldwide trackers. There are several of those available online. And to follow updates on COVID-19 in those countries on the CDC website, on the PAHO website, as well as all possible English versions of the large Latin American media groups that have summary reports of the situation there in, in several countries. And here in the U.S., like, keep practicing social distancing or physical distancing with social solidarity. Wash your hands and reach out to a healthcare provider via telemedicine if you experience symptoms. And then if that happens, not just practice social distancing, but self-quarantine for the needed number of days. And only go to the hospital if you have really serious symptoms. 
Thank you, Sylvia. I think this podcast has been part of this physical distancing and social solidarity experience since we're recording by Zoom for the first time. It was a pleasure to have you in Unpacking Latin America. And I also want to advise our listeners that the Institute of Latin American Studies has now a website that will be on as of this Friday, having information about COVID-19 in the region. Thank you a lot for your time, Sylvia. Thank you, Vicky, again for inviting me. It was a pleasure. Our show is produced by Stephen Calabria from FM and AM Productions. Our music was produced by Manuel Garcia Orozco. Check our site in Spotify, SoundCloud, and on the web of the Institute of Latin American Studies at Columbia University for other episodes of Unpacking Latin America. And follow the Institute of Latin American Studies on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Goodbye. Thank you.